So our final presentation this afternoon is a talk on clinically significant drug interactions in HIV and hepatitis C virus treatment, how quickly we forget, and this will be delivered by Dr. Jennifer Kaiser, who's an associate professor at University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy in Pharmaceutical Sciences in Colorado. Dr. Kaiser. Thank you, Dr. Benson. Hi, everyone. Here are my disclosures for this presentation. And in terms of the learning objectives today, what I hope you will gain from this presentation is that you'd be able to compare and contrast the clinical pharmacology of modern direct-acting antiviral agents, that you'd be able to recognize the therapeutic classes that could present problems with the DAAs, and to develop a plan for identifying and managing these interactions. So to accomplish these objectives, we're gonna go through a patient case. This is a 60-year-old male History of IV drug use, he's HIV and hepatitis C co-infected, diagnosed in 1997. He has good control of his HIV, um, his viral load is undetectable, his CD4 cell count's pretty robust. In terms of his antiretroviral history, he's taken uh, AZT, lamivudine, ritonavir, boosted indenivir. Uh, he then had a triple nucleoside therapy with ritonavir-boosted lopinavir. The AZT was swapped out for tenofovir. And then his current regimen, which he's been on for a while now, is tenofovir, disoproxyl fumarate, FTC, ritonavir-boosted darunavir twice daily, and raltegravir. All of his antiretroviral changes have not been because of virologic failure. They've all been upgrades to whatever the standard was for the treatment of HIV at the time. So in terms of his hep C history, he has genotype 1A. He has been treated before. He received peginterferon and ribavirin for a year and a half through an ACTG study and unfortunately relapsed to that treatment. His current hep C viral load is 7.3 logs. He had transient elastography. So Dr. Chu told you about this. This is the ultrasound test to determine um, the degree of fibrosis and his score was 9.1. So you can rule out that he has um, cirrhosis. In terms of clinical labs, I've included them all, but we don't need to go through them all. I'll just point out a couple that are important. He has normal renal function, so we estimated his creatinine clearance at about 119 or so. His platelets are 175, and then we also used the serum biomarker test to see if they agreed with the transient elastography result, and yes, they do indicate that he does not have cirrhosis. So he's a treatment-experienced individual, but he doesn't have cirrhosis. He has HIV co-infection. We want to treat him for his hepatitis C. We have several choices that Dr. Chu covered. A few of them, however, are going to require a change in antiretroviral therapy or some increased monitoring. So I want you to choose the one hepatitis C treatment for this patient that would not require a change in his antiretroviral therapy or additional monitoring. Okay, if you would use your little audience response clickers. Okay, let's see what you thought. Okay, so a few of you um, would consider grisoprevir, elbosvir, 29% lodipasvir, sofosbuvir, 7% the um, prod regimen, and 46% sofosbuvir, decladisvir. Let's go through each of those and see which one is the correct answer. 
So first with grisoprivirinalbosphere, so this is a protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor. They're co-formulated. These um, drugs are both metabolized by CYP3A. And so you're used to CYP3A interactions with ritonavir, so these drugs do participate in those interactions. Also, grisoprivir is a substrate for an uptake transporter in the liver called OP1B1. And so if you block OP1B1, grisoprivir can't get into the liver as well, so the plasma concentrations rise, and a lot of drugs do inhibit OP1B1. These drugs can also be perpetrators in interactions themselves. So grisoprivir is a mild inhibitor of CYP3A4, and both of them are inhibitors of breast cancer resistance protein, which is an efflux transporter in the liver and in other um, sites like the intestines. And elbosvir is also an inhibitor of PGP. So there are a lot of transporter um, interactions and some enzyme interactions to think about with this combination. And the result is that you cannot use boosters with grisoprivir albosphere, and that's because they can inhibit CYP3A and they can inhibit OP1B1, and so you get an increase in the grisoprivir levels. You increase the risk for toxicity. So our patient, he's taking ritonavir-boosted darunavir, cannot take grisoprivir and albosphere. Efavirenz is also problematic. It induces CYP3A, so it's going to reduce the concentrations of grisoprivir and elbosphere. Etrovirine hasn't been studied, but we assume it's going to have a similar interaction. So we're a little bit more limited in our choice of antiretrovirals with this therapy. So choice number one, grisoprivir elbosphere, is not the correct answer. You would have to make a change to the antiretroviral therapy if you needed to use this particular DAA therapy. How about choice number two? That was lodiposphere cefosbuvir. So lodiposphere has a much lower potential for drug interactions than the other um, agents that we just discussed, but it is metabolized a little bit by CYP3A4, we think, because there is an effect of efavirenz on lodiposphere. It's reduced about 30%. This drug is also a substrate for PGP, and it can engage in some drug interactions too. It's an inhibitor of PGP, so it can raise digoxin levels a little bit, and it also inhibits breast cancer resistance protein. A lot of statins go through BCRP. But if you remember only one thing about this drug, it's what Dr. Chu already talked about, that its absorption is pH dependent. This is the study she mentioned that was just presented at EASL that showed um, that the actual SVR rate didn't appear to differ in people on proton pump inhibitors versus no proton pump inhibitors that were taking lidiposphere sofosbuvir. So these data are a little reassuring, but does that mean we can use PPIs freely? No. Um, we do have to be careful about how we use gastric acid modifiers with this therapy, and acids need to be separated by four hours. You can use PPIs, but you have to give them in the fasted state simultaneously with sofosbuvir lidiposphere, and any deviation from that can result in a 90% drop in the lodiposphere levels. You can use H2 blockers, but you cannot exceed the 40 milligram BID equivalent of famotidine. But our patient's not on a PPI. So let's get back to the matter at hand. The issue with lodiposphere and cefosbuvir for our patient, who's on ritonavir-boosted darunavir and tenofovir, is that he may have an increase in his tenofovir exposures. So lodiposphere and cefosbuvir increases tenofovir exposures when given is tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, regardless of which antiretroviral regimen is, but it's really only problematic for the boosting agents. Let me show you this in a graph. I think it's easier to understand that way. So on the y-axis here, you have tenofovir area under the curve. On the x-axis, I'm going to show you several different antiretroviral regimens. So with the favarins, we know that when we add lodiposphere sofosbuvir, we get about a doubling in the tenofovir exposures. 
With ropivirine, we get about a 40% increase in tenofovir exposures when we add ledipasvir sofosbuvir. But this isn't that big a deal because even when these levels are increased, they're still within the range of what we typically see when we give tenofovir with ritonavir-boosted PIs. We have plenty of safety data in this range. This isn't the problem. The problem is when we give people who are on tenofovir dizaproxyl fumarate and boosting agents ledipasvir sofosbuvir, because now we've given them two reasons to have higher tenofovir exposures. And when we increase these levels, we now have exposures that exceed the range that we have established safety data for. So the problem is you now could have potentially really high tenofovir levels. The clinical consequences of that, given the short amount of time that we treat someone for hepatitis C, are still kind of unknown. But so choice number two was ledipasvir sofosbuvir. Could we use that in this patient without any change to antiretroviral therapy or without any additional monitoring? And the answer is no. According to the guidelines, we shouldn't use tenofovir dizabroxyl fumarate um, regimens with ledipasvir sofosbuvir in patients that have impaired renal function. So that's a creatinine clearance less than 60. And we shouldn't use TDF with boosted regimens and sofosbuvir ledipasvir until we have more data, unless we have no other choice. And sometimes we don't have another choice, that the urgency of treatment is high for that patient. Um, there's some data suggesting uh, from Pittsburgh and a few other groups that about 30% of patients can't get off this regimen. They need the protease inhibitor as part of their regimen. They need the TDF. So if we have to use that combination, we have to do so with increased monitoring. So we need some good measures at baseline of renal function. We need to estimate their GFR, um, get a phosphorus measurement, and then collect urine, protein, and glucose. And we need to continue doing this every two to four weeks during treatment to keep an eye on their renal function. In terms of estimating the renal function, the chronic kidney disease and HIV guidelines recommend using the CKD epi equation, which I found online, and it looks pretty similar to the MDRD. How about the prod regimen? That was choice number three. Could we use that in this patient without any change in their antiretroviral therapy or any increased monitoring? Well, this contains several agents, a protease inhibitor, an NS5A inhibitor, and a non-nucleoside NS5B inhibitor. All three agents participate in some degree of drug interactions as either victims or perpetrators. So they're all a substrate for CYP3A4, and they're all a substrate for PGP, as well as some other transporters, including that OP1B1 uptake transporter that we talked about before. There are interaction data with PROD and several antiretroviral drugs. It's okay with tenofovir. It's okay with raltegravir. Ropivirine levels are increased, however. And that increase could put patients at risk for QTC prolongation, theoretically. Where it gets really fun is with the protease inhibitors. So you can use adizanivir with prod, but you have to hold the booster because there's already a booster in the pro-co-formulated pro, um, pill. So you don't want the patient to take that extra booster from their antiretroviral therapy. You can't use lopinavir and ritonavir because there's too much ritonavir in that regimen with prod. Darunavir, this is where it's a little fuzzier. So in healthy volunteers, there was at least a 50% decrease in darunavir troughs when we gave it with prod. And so for a treatment-naive patient, maybe that's okay, but it could be problematic for a treatment-experienced patient. 
Some recent data at Croy from the Turquoise 1B study looked at this prod with ritonavir boosted darunavir in a bit more detail. It's a small study at this point. They had 22 patients. They were on once-day darunavir. They randomized them to either continue taking once-a-day darunavir or to switch to twice-daily ritonavir boosted darunavir while they were treated for their hep C. And as you can see, all the patients were cured of hep C in the study, which is good news. And actually, the interaction was, uh, um, less, w was not as big as what we had seen in healthy volunteers. So there was only you know, about a 20% reduction or so in the AUC, but there was still a drop in the trough. So it was either 22% you know, or so or 36 so somewhere in that range. So that's less than the 50% that we saw in healthy volunteers, but could this still be problematic in treatment experience patients? Well, there were two patients that had HIV breakthrough in this study. That's what we were worried about. We were worried about the darunavir levels being low and that potentially causing them to have HIV breakthrough. At this point, though, they, um, the investigators said that it didn't appear to be related to the darunavir exposures. We haven't seen these data yet, though. I haven't seen these PK data. They're supposed to be coming in June or so, so we'll have a better idea then. We'll also know more when we have more patients in the study. Right now, we only have um, 22, but the parent study is supposed to have 230 patients. So if you have to use this combination, I would say that we really need to monitor the HIV viral loads um, frequently in these patients. So choice number three, sort of a maybe, but I would say no right now, that this is, wouldn't be the right option, that it would require additional monitoring if we used this. So choice number four was cefosbuvir to cladosphere, and that is the correct answer. That's a regimen we could use without making any changes to the antiretroviral therapy and without any additional monitoring. So decladosphere is um, highly reliant on CYP3A for, metabolism, for its metabolism. So as Dr. Chu mentioned, you have to consider the drugs that the patient is taking and then adjust the decladosphere dose appropriately. It can also be um, a perpetrator in interactions as it inhibits PGP, BCRP, and that uptake transporter we talked about, OP1B1. So remember, our patient was on ritonavir-boosted darunavir. So my question for you is, the dose of decladosphere should be reduced if given with ritonavir-boosted darunavir. Is that true or false? Oh, split right down the middle. Glad I chose this to talk about then. Okay, so I understand why you're confused. In the very beginning, they studied decladosphere with ritonavir-boosted adazanavir, and they found that the decladosphere exposures were too high when they used it with adazanavir. So based on that, they assumed that the dose needed to be reduced regardless of which ritonavir-boosted PI they used with decladosphere. So whether it was darunavir, lopinavir, or adazanavir, they needed to go from 60 to 30. So they tried that in the Ally 2 study that Dr. Chu presented. Overall, the SVR rate was good, but in the few patients that got darunavir, the SVR rate was lower. So they then did a healthy volunteer study to actually look at the PK of decladosphere with darunavir, ritonavir at that lower dose. 
And what they found, shown here in orange, is that the decladosphere dose, when it was dosed at 30 milligrams with darunavir, was much lower than what they saw with decladosphere at full dose at 60 milligrams. So this slight reduction in exposures may have contributed to more failures in Ally 2. There were some other factors that might have contributed. There were more patients on decladosphere that got only eight weeks, I mean darunavir that got only eight weeks. There were also more cirrhotics that were on darunavir. So those things may have contributed to the lower SVR rate in this trial in those on darunavir, but the drug interaction was certainly a factor as well. So the bottom line is that with atazanivir, you're going to use a lower dose of decladosphere. You're going to use 30 milligrams. But with darunavir and lopinavir, you need to use full dose. Here is a table. Most of this information came from the package insert on when you can leave the dose the same versus when you need to decrease the dose of decladosphere. As with all the DAAs, you cannot use potent inducers. They're going to reduce the exposures of the direct-acting hep C agents and reduce their efficacy. There's also a list of drugs that you would need to increase the decladosphere dose. Efavirenz is on this list, and as well as etrovirine. So you can use a variety of antiretroviral agents with decladosphere, but you are going to have to adjust the dose of the decladosphere to accommodate the antiretroviral therapy. So for our particular patient, although the right choice in terms of not having to change antiretroviral therapy, in terms of not having to do any increased monitoring, was to use cefosbuvir decladosphere, but that's expensive. And so we didn't use that for this patient. We actually used cefosbuvir lodiposphere, and our patient did okay. Um, and here is a data set from Croy showing GFR during treatment in patients who were on a boosted regimen, so it was either COBE or ritonavir boosters, with TDF versus patients on TDF without a booster. And what they found was that all patients had a small decline in their GFR, but that the actual difference in GFR between those on a boosted regimen, shown in the light blue, and those not on a boosted regimen, um, was, there was no difference. There was also no difference at the end of treatment in patients that had an EGFR of less than 70 in either group. So this is small data set, but maybe reassuring that even though those tenofovir levels are increased, that maybe it's not of clinical significance for this short period of time. But we also have an alternative now to TDF. We have TAF. So I have a question for you about the difference in pharmacokinetics between TAF and TDF. So which of the following best describes the differences between the pharmacokinetics of tenofovir alafenamide and tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate when given at the standard oral doses? Choice number one, plasma concentrations of tenofovir are higher with TAF than with TDF. Choice two, plasma concentrations of tenofovir are lower with TAF versus TDF. Choice three, tenofovir levels are the same. Choice four, the intracellular levels of tenofovir diphosphate are lower with TAF than with TDF. Okay, vote now. Okay, 63% of you thought that the plasma concentrations of tenofovir are lower with TAF, and the next runner-up, 26%, thought it was choice number four, that the intracellular levels were lower with TAF. 
depends on the cell type sort of trick question. Um, so let's review the pharmacology for a moment of TAF, okay? So for tenofovir, TDF, what we've been using all these years, it gets into the plasma, it gets quickly converted to tenofovir. And that tenofovir is a substrate for an uptake transporter in the kidneys called OAT1, and that is what mediates some of its renal toxicity. Okay? TAF, however, can go directly to the cell. Only a minor amount gets converted to tenofovir. So both of them form the same active agent, tenofovir diphosphate, but the concentrations may differ in different cell types. So TAF is not a substrate for OAT1. So therefore, the thought is lower systemic levels of tenofovir, less um, tenofovir in the kidneys, therefore an improved renal safety profile. TAF has been studied with cefospivir lidiposphere. This was a healthy volunteer drug-drug interaction study looking at TAF, FTC, elvitegravir, COBE, the levels of tenofovir and TAF before and after adding cefospivir lidiposphere. And what you'll see is that there was a 27% increase in the tenofovir levels when you gave cefospivir lidiposphere to individuals on this antiretroviral therapy. However, even with that 27% increase, the levels of tenofovir with TAF are still 20% of a typical AUC with what we see with TDF. So therefore, these patients um, you know, have a much lower chance of having renal toxicity from the tenofovir because their systemic exposures are so much lower with TAF. So the answer to that question was number two. The plasma levels are lower for tenofovir with TAF. Choice number four, the renal cell levels, although they've never been measured to my knowledge, are probably lower with TAF versus TDF, but in cells, the levels are actually higher because the TAF can get to the um, active form, tenofovir diphosphate, more readily. So Dr. Chu mentioned that we have a new hep C agent coming in June. This is velpatosphere. And so what's the pharmacology of this drug going to be like? If I'm going to put a patient on this therapy, what do I have to think about? Well, in a lot of ways, its pharmacology is very similar to lidiposphere, but there are some important differences. First, we'll talk about the similarities. It's pH-dependent absorption again. So you have the same considerations with gastric acid modifiers that you do with lidiposphere. You have the same issue with increased tenofovir levels, although the clinical significance of this is still being um, worked out. The difference is velpatosphere is more heavily reliant on CYP3A for its metabolism than lidiposphere. So a drug like a Favarin's that induces CYP3A is going to have a much greater effect on velpatosphere than it does on lidiposphere. So you cannot use an inducer such as a Favarin's with velpatosphere. Let's talk about some other classes to consider. My time's limited here. I'm not going to go over all the drugs. I've made a list of a few that are either important because they do have um, clinically significant interactions or because they're agents that are commonly used in our patients. So methadone, buprenorphine, related to our last speaker's talk, these drugs are fine with all of our hep C therapies. Analgesics could potentially be problematic depending upon which one you're using with the prod therapy, okay with the others. Um, anxiolytics, sedative hypnotics, benzos could be problematic with the prod. SSRIs, we don't have a lot of data with prod, but they look okay with the others. 
Oral contraceptives are fine with all of these with the exception of prod. So when they did a healthy volunteer study with ethanol estradiol and prod, the first few women had significant elevations in their liver function test. So you cannot use ethanol estradiol-based contraceptives with prod. You can use progestin-based therapies. Immunosuppressants. Um, Prod uh, interactions with these have been worked out very well. There's some very nice data on how to adjust the doses during a hep C treatment of tacrolimus and cyclosporin. These agents are fine with sofosbuvir decladosphere and sofosbuvir lidiposphere, but cyclosporin is not okay with grisoprevir. Grisoprevir levels are significantly increased because cyclosporin inhibits CYP3A and that OP1B1 transporter we were talking about. Uh, tacrolimus is probably okay. Our old school anti-epileptics are problematic with all of these because they are inducers. So by old school, I mean phenytoin, carbamazepine, phenobarbital. Statins is a class I want you to always remember because statins rely on breast cancer resistance protein and all of these DAAs somehow interact with BCRP and it depends on the extent of the inhibition of BCRP where you'll need to consider dose decreases or a switch in statin therapy. Calcium channel blockers is another class that should raise flags for you. And then as Dr. Chu mentioned, amiodarone. There was a poster at Easel trying to understand the mechanism for this. I'm giving a drug-drug interaction talk. I actually don't think this is a drug interaction per se. It appears that some of the DAAs slow AV conduction. So the coupling of amiodarone with these DAAs can result in this significant bradycardia. So here are some resources for drug interactions. Um, Dr. Chu already mentioned the University of Liverpool site. This is a really good site. Um, I also would recommend Alice Singh's site at Toronto General Hospital. Alice isn't constrained by only giving drug interaction information for drugs that are approved. So she probably already, I haven't looked this up yet, but I would assume she has data already for velpatosphere on her site. So if you're planning for that, since it's coming soon, you could look at the interactions and make some changes to a patient's um, uh, therapy before they start hep C treatment. And then of course this group, you're all familiar with the DHHS guidelines, they also have interactions with hep C therapies. So in summary, I think the most important consideration in the treatment of co-infected individuals um, is drug interactions. And in general, our current therapies have pretty well characterized pharmacology, and that makes their interaction profile a lot easier to manage, at least compared to tilaprovir and bisoprovir. But you still need a systematic approach to identification of these interactions and management of these interactions. And while there are a lot of data to make informed decisions, there are still some interactions, getting back to the title of this talk, that uh, we cannot forget. So thank you. Any questions? Well, maybe I'll come up there with you. Maybe I'll ask what might be a stupid question, no. but uh, I do a lot of work with tuberculosis, and oftentimes we have people with multiple opportunistic infections that we have to treat. Um, my first question is, do any of the new hepatitis drugs have difficulties with QTC prolongation? Do you know of any information related to that? No, I haven't seen data indicating that they would have problems with QTC prolongation. Okay. And secondly, um, 
rifampin being the most potent of inducers, it sounds like a lot of drug interactions would be relevant if you were treating tuberculosis as well. Um, maybe not so much in Colorado, but here in Southern California, we still have an appreciable rate of patients with tuberculosis. So um, any data on rifibutin in relationship to any of these drugs, since its potential mm -hmm. for induction is less than that with efavirenz and rifampin? Mm -hmm. I don't believe I've seen data with rifibutin. I know uh, the approach sometimes is to try to get them through their TB treatment and then if, if they can wait, then to treat them for their hepatitis C when you're done with the need for the rifamycin. Um, one question. Since insurance dictates a lot of the hepatitis C-related therapies, how do you combat this when choosing the best regimen for HIV-infected patient with the potential for drug interactions? It is a big issue. I mean, I think once you have a patient that really needs the antiretroviral therapy that they're currently on and doesn't have a lot of options, then you just have to write a thousand letters until you're finally <laughs> able to get the therapy that you need for these patients. And it's unfortunate that that's, you know, the approach we have to take, but sometimes that's the only way to be able to do what's best for them. Okay, any other questions from the audience related to drug interactions? I think you did a, an incredible job reviewing some very complex data. So thank you very much to Dr. Kaiser, especially for stepping in at the last moment. So.